Morning. So when Rena's asked me to speak on Revelation, um, I wasn't initially excited about the idea. There's a lot of thoughts on Revelation and that can make it really challenging to teach from. A lot of people read it in very different ways. Um, but fortunately, Renus asked me to preach on the letters, which means I don't get to tackle all the really tricky stuff. Uh, in the past few weeks, Renus has laid a really strong foundation for us to work off of today. Uh, but I just kind of want to go over a few of the things that uh, you would have learned in the last few weeks. So in the book of Revelation, you can identify three distinct genres, all kind of weaving together and interacting with one another. First, we have apocalypse, which is sort of like the unveiling of things unseen. And then we have prophecy, which is less so about predicting the future and more about speaking God's word into something and a call of, towards faithfulness. And lastly, this book was a letter. It was written from John to a church, you know, from someone to someone. So as we explore this further today, it's valuable to keep in mind that this was a letter from John to churches he knew. And its purpose was to unveil or reveal that which they were unaware of and call them into covenant faithfulness in Christ. So, Chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation consist of seven letters to seven different churches across what we now know as Turkey. And as Renus has mentioned a few times, it is no accident that we have seven churches addressed. The number seven signifies completeness or wholeness, which clues us into the understanding that John not only writes to these seven churches— but also to the church as a whole. The contents of these letters are not only meant for their particular time and place, but for all churches everywhere. I had a Bible teacher one time who had this line, which sums us up really nicely. The Bible, or in this case, Revelation, was not written to us, but it was written for us. So let me just repeat that. The Bible was not written to us, but it was written for us. This is true of every book of the Bible. When, when Paul sat down to wrote Corinthians or Romans or Philippians, he had real living people in mind. He was not writing these letters with 21st century Canadians in mind. Likewise, John wrote this letter to real living human beings. And this letter was meant to be intelligible to a specific audience. The symbolism of seven churches really echoes what my teacher used to say. Although these letters were not necessarily written to us, they were absolutely written for us. When we read the letters of Revelation, we need to know that they are just as relevant to us today as they were to the original readers. Each of the churches in this book had unique struggles. Sometimes they came from external forces, such as persecution. And sometimes those struggles came from within. 
for instance, false teaching or immoral behavior. But the point is that all churches across every culture, nation, time, will at some point face similar struggles. The real power and importance of these letters lies in the fact that every church which has ever existed has needed to hear at least one of these letters spoken into their context. For example, let's just listen to Jesus' words to the church of Smyrna and try to imagine the kinds of churches that would need to hear this. Chapter 2, verses 10 to 11. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, that you may be tested. And for ten days you will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. I imagine for churches undergoing persecution or facing extreme difficulty, this letter would be an incredibly powerful source of hope. So when we read these letters, it is extremely important to allow them to speak into our current context. We need to ask ourselves, what might Jesus be saying to us, to me, to the church at large right now? How do we resemble these churches? And when reading these letters, we need to listen to the Lord's word in our present moment. At some level, each of these letters will apply to different churches across the world. Churches in Africa will have different struggles than churches in Asia. And, you know, South American churches will have different struggles than the churches of Europe and North America. So in reading through these letters, which one most clearly speaks into our context? Which of these letters do 21st century North Americans most need to hear? And, you know, for honest, it, it's pretty hard not to read the letter to the Laodiceans and see a lot of similarities between us and them. The letter to Laodicea is probably one of the most well-known of all the letters especially for its famous line about being lukewarm. Before we reread this letter, I want to talk a bit more about Laodicea and hopefully help us to see why we might have a few things in common. First of all, it's important that you know that Laodicea was a ridiculously rich city. The city was well-situated geographically and had thriving industries in trade and banking, garment-making and medicine. Laodicea was a wealthy place with a lot going on. Another important piece of background is that Laodicea did not have a source of water. Instead, they had to pipe in their water from over six miles away. And here's the catch. The water actually came from a hot spring. So this might sound nice at first, but this caused a couple problems. First, the water was full of minerals, which effectively made it undrinkable. And if you've been to a natural hot spring, you'd, you'd probably know it, it kind of has a distinct smell about it, you know, the sulfurs and the various minerals in the water. And secondly, and here's the important piece, the water did not have a chance to properly cool by the time it reached the city. 
meaning it was still warm when it arrived. It's like, have you ever left one of those little disposable water bottles, like sitting out in the sun for a while? And then you crack it open, and you take a sip, and it's like warm and like kind of plasticky tasting, and it's not, it's not exactly really pleasant or refreshing. And, you know, likewise, the people in Laodicea couldn't drink their water fresh. They'd have to put it in jars to cool it down before they could drink it. And lastly, the city of Laodicea prided itself on being able to take care of themselves, you know, to handle their own affairs. Um, In the year 60 AD, most of the city was destroyed in an earthquake, as well as surrounding cities. And instead of receiving aid from Rome, like their neighbors, they completely funded and rebuilt the city by themselves. No help. They were so wealthy, like, by the time they'd finished, it was nicer than it had been before the earthquake. So, these were people who were used to relying on their own success to see them through thick and thin. So with all this in mind, I'm just going to reread Jesus' words to Laodicea and just try and keep these things in mind as we go through it. To the angel of the church of La- in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works, You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire, so that you may be rich, and white garments so you may clothe yourselves, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Guess I can lose the mask. So obviously there's a lot going on here. But the first thing I want to bring to your attention are their struggles. Typically in each letter, Jesus will compliment a church on what they do well. Sometimes he mentions good works, endurance, love, and etc. But notice what Jesus says here. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. So in place of a compliment, they're receiving criticism. Jesus is effectively saying that he has nothing good to say about them. We need to pay attention to this detail because if the Western church really does have anything in common with Laodicea, that does not bode very well for us. So moving on to the criticism. And here there's two major points that I want to bring to your attention. 
First, they're being lukewarm. And second, their wealth. The term lukewarm Christian is often used to describe people who maybe identify with the faith, but don't really live it out. And although that, that's close, I, I don't think it really communicates the seriousness of Jesus' words. Sometimes people interpret the passage like this. Being cold means you're not a Christian. Being hot means you are. And being lukewarm just means you're not a good one. But I, I don't think that's the best way to read this. Rather, I, I think that the metaphor is getting at something else. Think of it like this. What is cold water good for? Well, it's good for drinking. It's refreshing. And what is hot water good for? Well, cooking, cleaning, you know, and so on. But what is lukewarm water good for? Virtually nothing. Like, I can't really think of any purpose that I would use, you know, lukewarm water for. And remember, lukewarm water was a daily problem for the Laodiceans. When their water arrived from the aqueduct, they would either have to warm it up or cool it down in order to use this. And so I hope you're kind of able to see where this, this piece of background is, you know, bringing this metaphor to life. So let's read this again. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. I think the metaphor is essentially saying two things. First, the church of Laodicea is effectively useless. If they were either hot or cold, the Lord could use them. But because they are lukewarm, he has no use for them. Not only are they useless to God, but he's actually repulsed by them. When Jesus says he will spit them out of his mouth, that translation doesn't really do it justice. A lot of scholars actually prefer to translate it as vomit. So not only is Jesus accusing them of being useless, but he's, he's actually repulsed by them. These are harsh words. Imagine being the Laodiceans and having Jesus himself say he wants to vomit you out. Okay, so the Laodiceans suck. But what does that mean? What are they or aren't they doing to receive such scorn? Why are they lukewarm? And what is it that makes them useless? Well, Jesus immediately connects this with his second critique. In verse 17, he says, For you are rich, for you say, I am rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. In short, they implicitly believed that their wealth could save them. Because of their great wealth, they did not need Jesus. Remember, no one can serve two masters. For he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one 
and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So, like, remember, when Laodicea was destroyed in an earthquake, they refused help from Rome. Instead, opting to rebuild with their own money. The Laodicean culture was one in which you didn't ask for outside help. You only relied upon yourself and your own success. Jesus' counsel to Laodiceans was to buy from him gold, to store up treasure in heaven. So let's be clear, it's not necessarily their wealth that's the issue. Rather, Jesus seems far more concerned about how their wealth has affected their hearts. The fundamental problem here is their, their impulse to turn to money and not to God. When problems arose, their first instinct was not to seek God's help, but to deal with it themselves. Their wealth had, had led them to become spiritually apathetic, not turning to God because they didn't think they needed him. I think for the most part, uh, the parallels between Laodicea and the modern West are pretty clear. We today are so wealthy, it's, it's difficult to really comprehend it. I mean, the Laodiceans might have been rich, but we are far wealthier than they were. Never in history of the world has a society been wealthier and more comfortable than the wealthy nations of our day. And, you know, there's a lot of good things about that. I'm not saying it's a bad thing. We are incredibly blessed to live where and when we do. You know, we ought to be thankful for that. But there are dangers that come with wealth and comfort. Remember, we we can't avoid something if we don't see it. And based on Jesus' warnings to the Laodiceans, I, I want to suggest two possible pitfalls that we may be prone to in our culture. First, wealth can cause us to trust in money more than God. And I'm the first to admit that I'm guilty of this. Uh, if any of you are familiar with the Enneagram, my number is five. And one of the common traits among fives is a propensity to accumulate wealth and resources and knowledge as a means of self-preservation. Basically, when we, when we look at the world, we see all the things that could go wrong. And our instinct is to protect ourselves by hoarding resources and knowledge. So suffice to say, I am very guilty of relying on myself. I go to a lot of trouble to make sure my bases are covered. And you know what? It, it's... It's weird to talk about this as though it's a bad thing. In our culture, like Laodicea, we value self-sufficiency. Being able to take care of yourself is a virtue. But here's the issue. How am I supposed to trust God when I do everything in my power not to need him? I think it's really hard for for many of us in the West to really trust God 
The fact is, we can usually do just fine on our own. But God wants us to trust in Him, to put our faith in His promises, to rely on His strength and not our own, to buy gold from Him and not the world. Just hard to do when, when we've been taught to look and see money as our, our primary means of staying afloat in the world. When times get tough, what is the first solution we look to? God or money? So, how do we avoid this posture of self-reliance over God? How do we learn to put our trust in God before money? Truthfully, I, I don't have an easy solution. This is something that is deeply rooted in our culture and in our hearts. If you, like me, tend to, to turn to material things before God, all I can really suggest is that we confess it. We repent of it and we pray that he might change our hearts. I'm on this journey as well, and I suspect I will be for a long time. But just imagine the, the peace we might experience when, when we actually get there. To actually trust with all of your heart that God will provide. So moving on to my second point, uh, and I'm going to make this point really brief, but I think it really gets to the heart of Laodicea's sin. Sometimes wealth allows us to do good things without being good people. Just say that one more time. Sometimes wealth allows us to do good things without being good people. There's a temptation and a danger that exists when you have a lot of wealth. It becomes really easy to give money to good causes, but fail to actually love people and be Christ to them. We are called to be generous givers, and we are equally called to love our neighbors and our enemies. I suspect, however, that the Laodiceans may have fallen into thinking that they could give money to the poor without actually having to know them or love them. Without love, our, our so-called good deeds can become nothing more than tokenism. Doing the good work of the Lord needs to be paired with relationship. Believe me, when I, I say I could go on this for a while, um, I had a longer bit about this, but had to ax it for time. But I'll end it with this. May your good works and your generosity always be accompanied by love and relationships. Don't allow the trappings of prosperity and wealth to draw you away from the difficult call to love those you're helping. So, just to conclude, this is a letter from Christ to the ancient church of Laodicea, which serves as a warning about the spiritual trappings of wealth and prosperity. Specifically, the way it can cause us not to look to God for help, but to money. 
There's two ways I'm suggesting this issue may have worked its way into the Western church. First, we have a really hard time trusting God to provide. Often looking entirely to ourselves to solve our own problems. Secondly, having wealth makes it exceedingly easy to think that giving away money can absolve us from other good works, especially those that require us to love people relationally. Money isn't bad, and neither is wealth. But it's crucial to understand the way that money and wealth can compromise our commitment and devotion to following Jesus. As we go into the next week, my my hope and prayer for all of us is that God might open our eyes and our hearts to see these things and to help us to repent when we inevitably get caught up in the trappings of our culture. So let me just close in a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for the words to your church. Thank you, Jesus, that you have provided your church with these letters of correction and grace. Lord, help us to see and discern the ways the world has pulled us away from you. Give us strength to confess when we've fallen into sin. And Father, help us to turn away from the things that hold us back. Help us to love you and trust you completely. Holy Spirit, help us always to love those we help and help those we love. In Jesus' name, amen.